0: this semester in a series called Grace-Powered Community. And if you look at the book of Ephesians, you'll notice that the first three chapters uh, talk about doctrine and theology and grace and all that Christ has done for us. And then in chapter 4, the book turns with the word, Therefore, in light of everything uh, that God has done, Now, go live in community and live Christ-like in that community. Uh, And that's what we really see throughout this book and throughout other Paul's uh, writings as well. But uh, that's kind of what we're looking at this semester. And we're up to chapter 2. And tonight we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 22 in chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, turn there so you can get the context. If not, there's the text is printed for you in the outline that's going around. But I don't know about you, but it seems like everywhere we turn in the world, there's hostility. There is hostility. And I want to suggest tonight that the thing that you want more than anything else is peace. You want peace not only... Outside, you want global peace, you know, the wars to cease, you want economic peace, you want political peace. But more than that, I want to suggest that you want internal peace from your turmoil in your heart. We want peace relationally, we want peace sexually, we want financial peace, we want intellectual peace we want peace within our own families with our parents with our roommates we want and long for racial peace and we could go on and on and on thinking about all the hostility and all the places in our world that need peace why do we need peace so badly well you see in our nature we are alienated and estranged from God we're alienated from ourselves From God and from one another. And the Bible says that the reason why we are estranged or alienated is because of sin. That's why we have so little peace. Because you see, sin destroys peace. Sin wrecks our relationship with God. It has wrecked our relationships with one another and our neighbor. And it has wrecked our hearts as well. And so the walls of hostility, the disunity that we experience in our own lives and in our own relationships, and that we experience all around us is a direct result from sin. However, what I want you to see in our passage tonight is that peace and reconciliation comes as we look to Jesus. As we look to the one who our passage says in verse 14, is our peace. And because Jesus is our peace, we can move towards one another in love, in forgiveness. We can move towards one another with grace. But the question is, how do we do that? How do we seek peace with ourselves and with the world around us? Where The passage we're going to look at answers that question as well. And it shows us three ways. And the first way that we can seek peace is by identifying the dividing walls in our own lives. You see, to completely understand this passage, I've got to do a little history lesson on the Old Testament. And the Old Testament history tells us that Israel was God's chosen people. They were the apple of His eyes, so to speak. But in light of that, what they were still... still And they were still to be a light to all the nations around them and to all the people around them. But instead, Israel twisted that incredible privilege and they turned it into favoritism. And they had this thinking that no one else could be loved by God in any form or fashion. And so we get to our passage and it makes sense on why the Jews hated the Gentiles so much. They had this immense hatred in their hearts for them. And so with that background, let's look at our uh, passage. Look at verse 11. Paul begins this section in Ephesians by turning the attention to the Gentiles and talking about who they once were by nature. And we know that the church in Ephesus, they were Gentiles. And the Jews used to call the Gentiles the uncircumcised You see, the Jews were circumcised because that was God's sign for His covenant people. The Gentiles were uncircumcised. And so both the Jews and the Gentiles used to use these terms, circumcised and uncircumcised, as derogatory terms towards one another. They were actually kind of a form of a racial slur. Much of what we use today, they were using those words with one another because they hated One another that much. Paul doesn't stop there though. Look at what he says about the Gentiles. In verse 12. He says they were separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. If you're looking at those verses. Strangers to the covenant. Without hope. Without God. They were Christless. They were stateless. They were friendless. They were hopeless. They were godless. In verse 14, he goes on. And so we're starting to get the picture here of the division between the Jews and the Gentiles. But Paul makes it even more vivid into our eyes when we look at verse 14. He makes reference to the dividing wall of hostility. And you know, Paul is referencing here an actual physical wall. Because you see, there was a wall... In the temple that literally separated the Jews and the Gentiles. Around the temple there were various courts where various people would come and worship God. And the outermost wall, which was five feet thick, was called the courts of the Gentiles. The outer courts. The Gentiles, if you were a Gentile, you weren't allowed to get any closer than that. Now, what do you think that type of physical barrier does to you psychologically? Well, you know, it probably makes you feel like you're hated. Like you, you're the scum of the earth. There's a book by a man named Charles Marsh. And it's entitled, God's Long Summer. Some of you might have read it, but in the book, Marsh takes us back to the summer of 1964 in Mississippi the state was in turmoil over Brown versus Board of Education and he was also in turmoil because of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and those that called themselves the freedom workers came down from the north and they were determined to make sure that these laws were enforced and the book says that many were mysteriously killed and others received many threats on their lives. But there was one man in particular that decided to challenge this new freedom in the local churches in downtown Jackson, Mississippi. They were all white churches and this man decided to take college students to challenge this new freedom. And listen to this one account. One Sunday, Mr. King drove a group of students to church for an early morning communion service. The ushers who had not prepared for the visitor's arrival rushed to the front of the chapel and formed a barricade at the double doors. The church regulars were forced to find their way to the chapel by entering the main building on the opposite side of the grounds. As the church ushers held their ground, King and the students leaned over their outstretched arms of the ushers and began beating on the heavy wooden closed doors of the chapel. People were inside, kneeling at the altar, waiting to receive communion, but the loud knocking on the back of the doors echoed furiously through the recesses of the interior. There was great apprehension inside about what to do. But in the end, many people remained in the pews instead of walking to the altar to take communion. So annoying was the sound of fists striking against the closed door of the chapel. Friends, if we still don't think that there is huge cultural and racial barriers to the free offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we're kidding ourselves. Because you see, we can talk about the Jews and the Gentiles all day long. And we can talk about Mississippi 40 years ago all day long with a relatively clean conscience. But what about us? What about us? I've been reading a book called Unchristian. And this is. What it looks like, in case you're interested in picking up. You can pick it up at any bookstore. But it's a book by the Barna Group. They're a group of pollsters, Christian pollsters. uh, And they interviewed outsiders for three years. Those that consider themselves outside the church, consider themselves non-Christians. And what they were trying to do is get those on the outside to get their perceptions of Christianity. And the Christians that they knew. And their findings are very sobering. And regardless of whether you agree or not, agree with them or not, you have to listen because it's really sobering on their findings. Here's a summary of what they found. They categorized it in six headings. Those on the outside think Christians, which I would say is most of you in this room, as being hypocritical, judgmental, anti-homosexual. Too political, over-concerned with converting people, meaning just beating them over the head with Christianity, convert, convert, instead of genuinely loving them. And also, they considered Christians to be too sheltered, not in tune with the real world and what's really going on. Friends, if you claim to be a Christian and you're in this room tonight, those, in short, what that's saying is those on the outside... They think that you hate them. That's what they think. And here's what I want you to realize. And I want myself, I need to realize this as well. Is though we might not have a physical temple with walls around it. We have plenty of walls in our own lives that we put up that can be just as strong. Things that we put up and isolate those around us and keep them at arms length. Let me ask you. Can a person of another race get a fair hearing in your Greek house? Do your political views since it's political season do they isolate people? Do they keep them at arms length? If they don't agree with you, do they feel isolated? If you're a Christian, what about your language, your Christian lingo? Does it isolate people with the language you use and how you talk? If people aren't a Christian or they're on the outside, do they feel like they can't relate to you and you're putting up this barrier? And some of you, it might be you use language that is too theological and you use it to impress them. But yet, it isolates those around you. Do you have clicks? Are you clicky? So that you always are pushing other people out that are trying to get into your group? Those are just a few questions that you can ask to see what your walls are. There are many others... Because we, each one of us has all kinds of walls and things that we're doing and building around us to keep people out. So not only if Jesus is our peace and we're to move towards other people in love, the first thing we have to do is identify the dividing walls in our own lives. And we need to deal with those and repent of those. The second thing we need to do is we need to trust in the one who brought reconciliation. If you're following along on your outline, it's on the back Of the scripture page. You see. What we've been saying. Is that sin has wrecked. And brought hostility. Inside our hearts. It's brought hostility. Between God. And ourselves. But it's also brought hostility. Between. uh, Our neighbor. uh, And ourselves. And we desperately need peace. And that's exactly. What God does for us. Look at verses 14 through 17. Tim Keller. Now, he's a pastor in New York City. He makes a very interesting point about these verses. And he notices that the word hostility is used twice. It's used in verse 14 and in verse 16. But it's used and it says that on the cross, God killed or destroyed the hostility. In verse 16. How can that be? How can it be? Because, you see, on the cross... Jesus was the only person that was killed. So how do we make sense of that statement? Well, there is a profound theological statement in that verse. On the cross, friends, Jesus became the hostility. On the cross, you see, God didn't make him hostile. But God, he made him the hostility itself. We see this this same idea in other parts of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him, referring to Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Notice that God doesn't make Him sinful, but God makes Him the sin itself. And what that means, friends, is that God treated Jesus legally as if He had done all the things that we have been doing to one another for years. Think about all the hostility, the war, the family violence, the oppression, the exclusion, the racism, all the hostility that you can think of in your mind. God put that on Jesus when He was on the cross and He punished Him for it and destroyed that hostility. He slew the hostility between God and us once and for all. Friends, this is the key to the Christian life. It's what it means to be a Christian. To embrace Jesus by faith is to have your record of hostility put on Him and have it punished. And in return, you get Jesus and His perfect record of peace. You see, Jesus is not just the source of our peace. Look at verse 14. He is our peace. Here's what I want you to get. Here's what I want to sink down deep into your heart. Is the result of Jesus' work in your life. The primary work or result of His work in your life is a breaking down of walls. It's a breaking down of walls. It's at the very core, friends, of what it means to be a Christian. Because Jesus broke down the wall of hostility that existed between you and God. And as a result of that, you can now go and break down the walls of hostility that exist between you and your neighbors. You and your friends. You and your classmates and your siblings and your parents and your friends and your teammates. That's what Jesus calls you to do. Jesus calls us through the gospel to move towards the person that we like the least. It calls us, let me say it a little stronger, to move towards the person that you hate. That you can't stand being around. That's what the gospel does. There's no cultural conditions. There's no skin color. There's no economic situation that bars access to the gospel. But through Christ and through the gospel, we're united to Him, every one of us. And we are part of one body. Let me say it this way. A little more strongly, if I may. If you are not making progress, and we all are constantly breaking down walls in our lives, but if you don't see any progression in those walls coming down, then I would bear to say that you don't really understand the gospel. That you don't really understand what Jesus has done. You see, unity among friends... Unity on this campus, unity among races, unity in churches, unity in families. It's not just some dreamed up idea of Christianity, just like, oh yes, thats that would be the best thing, and it's just wishful thinking. No, it's a fact of the cross. It's a fact in where it's not there, where there is not peace, and a breaking down of walls. I would say that the cross is not there. Jesus is not there. I know that's bold, but I think it's biblical based on what we've seen here tonight. So what does that say about where we are today? What does that say as we have just finished one of the most hostile centuries in all of human history? You think about that. We've seen that As we move towards people in love, we've got to identify our dividing walls. We also have to run to and trust the one who's brought the reconciliation. And then lastly, we have to celebrate a new humanity. Look at verses 19 through 22. Very interesting what Paul does here. But in 19 through 22, these verses describe a reversal of all the Gentiles... Disadvantages that Paul has described in verses 11 and 12. If you look at that, he just shows how Jesus reversed every single one of those. He reversed the Gentiles' plight. And Paul goes on to describe that by talking about two images. I'm not going to talk about the kingdom, but I'm going to talk about the family and the temple. But he talks about two images to show us how God is breaking down the wall And the result of that. The first one he talks about is the family. Look at verse 19. It says, Before, remember, the Gentiles were without God. And now, Paul says, they are members. Because of Jesus, of God's household. They're part of God's family. Do you understand what that means? It means that you were once alienated and isolated. But now you have a true family. A family that is young and old, black and white, rich and poor. You know what that is describing and where that family can be found? The local church. Friends, that's what we want to be about here at RUF. And that's what we're all about. It's about the church. Because that is God's ordained means for accomplishing the great commission on this earth. It's where we experience the preaching of the word and church discipline and the sacraments is in the local church. And friends, you can spare me all of your theological treatise and all your knowledge about Christianity and all your passion for missions if you're not involved in a local church. Because it's the bride of Christ. And I know you're in college and I know it's hard. I know it's hard to get involved. Uh, Because, you know, the tendency in college is to hop around from church to church for four years and never really settle. Please join a church. Be an associate member. Whatever it is, they can do this long distance thing. But get under the authority of the church. Take vows. Become members. Get around people that aren't like you. See, that's the beauty of the church. You go to the church and you see two-year-olds and you see 85-year-olds that have been walking with Jesus for 40 years and you can get to know them and you can get to know people of all stages in all generations and that's the beauty of the family of God. Secondly, we see the image of the temple in verses 21 through 22. Before we were alienated... Strangers without hope. But then look at what Paul says. But now we're being joined. We're being built together. And he uses this temple metaphor. And he's describing, what he's talking about is our connection with one another as the church and as believers. This idea of being joined and built together. Hebrews uh, 3.13 is one of a verse that I think is one that we need to uh, hold close. It says encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. So that you might not become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Think about that. Here's what this means. It means that you are to be involved in a Christian community. There should be some community Friends, in which you're involved in, in which people know you well. That doesn't mean everybody, but someone in that community needs to know you well. They need to know your big sins. They need to know your little sins, the ones that you can't see, that you're blind to, your besetting sins, your hidden sins. You know, you can think of it this way. You know... um, when you've got something, you come out of the calf and you've got something in your teeth, like a big green piece of lettuce and it's just sticking out and you don't know it and you go through the whole day and you're in and out of classes and you're just smiling as big as you can and everybody, you're walking and then it's like 6 o'clock and that one friend that loves you comes and says, I hate to tell you this, but you got something green right in the middle of your teeth and uh, I just... I'm your friend and I wanted to tell you. That's who you need in the Christian community. You need someone who loves you enough to point it out when you've got food in your teeth. Or shall we say, when you've got sin in your life. When you've got things that no one else really sees or no one else really wants to confront you on. Get someone that loves you enough to help you grow And see the things that you don't see. Are you involved in a Christian community where that is happening? If not, you need to find it as soon as possible. Because that is life for you. That is life. And that is what it means to live the Christian life. To be in community like that with other people. John Perkins. In the book, Let Justice Roll Down. Let Justice Roll Down. Uh, he talks, he, he, John Perkins actually fought in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, in Mississippi for justice. His brother actually died in his arms because he was shot and beaten by white deputy marshals. He goes on, and it all came to a head in 1970 when John Perkins and others went through an unbelievable night of beatings and torture. At the hands of white law officers in Mississippi. But through it all, Perkins returned hatred with love. He returned evil with good. And then at the end of the book, we see this scene. And Perkins is in the hospital. He's been brutally beaten again. And he's starting to grow weary. And he starts to think about all his pain and all the struggles in his life. And then bitterness and hatred start to creep in. And he starts to think about all the injustice that's been done to him. But just at that moment, the peace that he so desperately needed to look at came and showed up. Listen to what he writes. Oh, I know man is bad, is depraved. There's something built into him that makes him want to be superior. If the black man had the advantage, he'd be just as bad, Perkins says. So I can't hate the white man. The problem is spiritual. Black or white, we all need to be born again. This is an African-American man that has been brutally beaten many times. And listen to what he says. The problem is spiritual. We all need to be born again. It's a profound mystery. Jesus' concept of love, overpowering hate... I may not see its victory in this lifetime, but I know it's true. I know it's true because it happened to me on that bed full of bruises and full of stitches. God made it true in me. He washed my hatred and replaced it with a love for the white man in rural Mississippi. I felt strong again, Perkins said. Stronger than ever. What doesn't destroy me makes me stronger. You see, the desire, the desire for revenge, the desire for division and for hostility melted away as Perkins looked to Jesus. As he looked to the one who had established peace by reconciling us with himself and with one another. We don't have to look far to know that the world needs peace. You don't have to look very far within your own heart to know that inside you need peace. And the question before the house tonight, and the question that I'm going to leave you with, is are we going to look to the only one, which is Jesus, who is able to give us that peace? You think about that. Let me pray. Father, we thank You uh, for Your Word. It is challenging, it is hard, it's convicting, but it's true. And Father, I pray that we, uh, if there's anyone here tonight that has not trusted You, that knows that the wall of hostility between You and them still exists, I pray that You would give them faith. Grant them repentance. May they run to you, uh, the one who is our peace and who has established peace. Father, as we think about our relationships, many of them have hostility right in the center. Lord, would you enter that? Would you allow us to enter into that with courage, with faith, and look to you for change? Look to you, the one who has dealt so graciously with us when we were hostile towards you. Father, may that move us out towards others in love, in compassion, in grace. Father, I pray that on this campus we would see reconciliation like we've never seen it. Not only racial, but in all forms between organizations and sororities and fraternities and all those things. Father, because we know that when we see unity, we see the cross and we see Jesus. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.